let's get to it. Why don't you grab your Bibles and turn to the book of Isaiah as we uh, continue our study verse by verse. Um, I'm going to draw your attention to just four verses of our upcoming Wednesday night study, and we're going to look at those four verses. And uh, the idea uh, that we're going to see is Isaiah is going to draw our attention to really focus our uh, gaze, is the word. Uh, the word behold uh, is important. Uh, we're going to start the chapter, the verse, with this word behold, and it means to look upon. Now, we talk about the word behold. <clears throat> First of all, we don't use that word as much anymore. If you walked into your work and said, behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, people think you're weird. Uh, we don't use the word behold as much. The English word means to look or to listen, you know, both. Uh, but the Hebrew word here, and also the translated uh, New Testament word for behold, both the Greek and the Hebrew, there's a little bit of a... a, a a link attached to not only looking and listening, but also to, with great intent, focus on it. It don't, doesn't mean like look, but it means look intently with a purpose. And that's what Isaiah is admonishing us to do. By the way, there's something about looking that does in fact change a person's direction. Uh, you know, uh, there's some disciplines and sports and uh, you know, talents and giftings that where you look is what you're going to do. You got to look at what you're doing. And uh, I remember as a kid when my dad would say, Brett, where you look, that's where you're going to go in, in motocross, particularly on a dirt bike. You know, if you're looking at the rock that you're afraid of going over, inevitably you'll go right over that rock or, you know, crash into the rock. Um, so you need to look where you want to go. And that's, that's just, a, you know, fundamentals of motocross. You know, if you're going to rail a corner, you want to be kind of looking around where you want to be and it just kind of helps you get going in the right direction. Uh, I find that to be a good lesson in life. Where you look, that's where you're going to go. So if Johnny Depp is who you're looking at or Ellis, Ellen DeGeneres, DeGeneres or, um, or, you know, some of these Hollywood people, well, that's where you're going to go. You're going to be like them. Those two celebrities are kind of in trouble right now which is a problem. But you know, whether it's your favorite musicians or Hollywood stars or whatever, wherever you look, that's, that's gonna be what you're gonna be sort of like. Even more so, your buddies, the people you hang out with. Have you ever noticed how friends start looking and talking the same? It gets weirder. Um, husbands and wives start looking like each other, even though they looked nothing like each other before. It's because they, their demeanor and their talk, and as they hang out, they sort of start sounding and even sometimes looking the same. It gets weirder. Have you seen people with their dogs? <laughs> Some people start looking like their dogs. And uh, I'm not the only one who said that. Remember the 101 Dalmatian little cartoon, the old one, where all the people are walking their dogs and their dog looks just like them? I thought that was hilarious when I was a kid because I think that's true. It's true today where people, you know, it's, it's what you do. You start looking like who you spend time with. Um, so there's a principle in life. I think what Isaiah is telling us to look at um, this morning is going to be super helpful in making you and me to be the people that we're called to be. And so let's take a look at what Isaiah says to behold. We're going to do that. It's right here in Isaiah, and we're going to look at chapter 42. So why don't you turn with me to Isaiah chapter 42, and we're going to look at verses 1 through 4. Isaiah 42, 1 through 4. And there it says, Behold, my servant, whom I uphold, mine elect, in whom my soul delighteth. I have put my spirit upon him. He shall bring forth judgment to the Gentiles. 
He shall not cry nor lift up nor cause his voice to be heard in the street. A bruised reed shall he not break and the, quen- uh, pardon me, the smoking flax shall he not quench. He shall bring forth judgment unto truth. He shall not fail nor be discouraged till he has set judgment in the earth and the isles shall wait for his law. Isaiah says, behold, look with interest, with intent, look. Look at my servant. Now, who is this servant? It's not a what, it's a who. Who are we to be looking at here? Now, um, the answer is absolutely Jesus Christ. Now, some of you might be saying, well, Brett, how do you know we're talking about Jesus? I think we might be talking about somebody else. By the way, some of my Jewish buddies in Jerusalem, I've noticed the book of Isaiah, there's a lot of things that we say, that's about Jesus. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was despised and hated. This is prophetic words about Jesus the Messiah. Uh, he would be born of a virgin. You know, um, All these descriptions Isaiah gives are messianic. This is one of those verses or sections of verses talking about Jesus the Messiah. And my Jewish friends, no, it's about some guy talking about this Isaiah knew back in those days. Well, the truth is, how do we know, how do you and I know this is about Jesus? Well, therein lies a story, and the story kind of, the confirmation of this being Jesus is given to us from a little town in Israel called Capernaum. Um, I take our tour groups there. Uh, You know, Micah and I were there a few years ago and we shot some video uh, of Capernaum. Let me show you some of the footage of of Capernaum. Uh, The big white building there is the ancient synagogue in Capernaum. All the little rocks around there are ancient ruins from all their houses and little streets and store, stores and stuff. That was the village. But the big white building was the central synagogue of Capernaum. And it's the synagogue where Jesus actually uh, did many miracles. Now, the, the darker stones on the foundation, that's Christ era stones. The white stones were added 100 years after Christ came. But the original foundation, that's the very foundation, the very place where Jesus did many miracles, taught in the synagogue there in Capernaum. And so it's a really fun place to visit and see. All that said, one Sabbath day, Jesus was in there in the synagogue, there right in this very synagogue, and he was teaching, and a guy came in there with a withered hand, uh, shriveled up hand, and Jesus healed him on that Sabbath day. He told the guy, stretch forth your hand, and the guy did, and his hand was healed, and he was made whole. Meanwhile, um, as Jesus told the guy to stretch forth his hand, um, the Pharisees were standing around going, oh, brother, he healed the guy on the Sabbath day. And he said, healing, they said, healing is like work. So he did work on the Sabbath. We've got him. And they they were going to lay hold on him and figure out how to destroy him because he broke their laws. Now, by the way, Jesus wasn't breaking the laws of the Old Testament. That was just stupid man-made harebrained ideas about what the law should be. But Jesus didn't break the law, but they said he did. So Jesus, knowing what they were thinking, he had uh, something to say. In fact, let me read to you. um, This comes from Matthew's gospel, Matthew chapter 12. Um, I'll pick it up in verse 14. Um, And this is right after the healing that took place there uh, by the Sea of Galilee uh, in in Nazareth or in Capernaum there. Jesus, um, he said, stretch forth thine hand and he stretched it forth and it was like restored like the other one. 
And the Pharisees went out and held counsel against him how they might destroy him. But when Jesus knew it, he withdrew himself from thence and great multitudes followed him and he healed them all. I love that. It's almost like they said, you can't heal people on the Sabbath. And Jesus said, oh yeah. And he healed everybody. I love that. Well, it says, and then he charged those people that he healed that they should not make him known. Don't be telling anybody about this. Um, now, by the way, uh, have you ever noticed that some people like to talk a lot about what they do and, and their exploits as Christians and make a big deal out of it? Jesus, he wasn't like that. We'll see part of his nature here in a minute about humility, but he says, don't, don't tell anybody about this. Um, and so he said, don't make this known. Then Matthew, the gospel writer here says that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by Isaiah, the prophet saying, behold, my servant, whom I have chosen, my beloved, in whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him. He shall show judgment to the Gentiles. He shall not strive nor cry, neither shall any man hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed shall he not break, a smoking flax shall he not quench, till he sends forth judgment unto victory, and in his name shall the Gentiles trust. Matthew says this is the fulfillment of what happened there in Isaiah 42, verses one through four, what was spoken of there, he says, Jesus is the fulfillment of this prophecy that he would come and not you know, declare his name in the streets, that he would be the servant of the most high and that he would be delighting the father. All these things, now you say, Brett, you know, the New Testament account Matthew gives, it's not word for word what Isaiah said. That's okay, don't be stressed about that, why? Because if you remember, Isaiah wrote his in Hebrew, then it would be translated from Hebrew to Greek and then from Greek to English. So we shouldn't be shocked that there's slightly little translational differences between the Old Testament, Isaiah 42, one through four, and Matthew's um, uh, quoting of it. No big deal, same stuff, same notion, if you would. So all that to say, here in Matthew chapter 12, we see that this is none other than Jesus Christ. That's who Isaiah for sure is talking about. And you've heard me say this a million times. The best commentary on the Bible is the Bible. And so that's how we know for sure that Isaiah is talking about Jesus. So we're told here by Isaiah to behold, to look, look into it with intent. And then he lists eight main um, qualities or character traits um, of who Jesus Christ, the Messiah, would be from Isaiah's perspective, or as we know, who Jesus Christ is uh, this very day, all of his nature and character. We see eight things listed, and I think it'd be good for us to behold, to look at those eight things. So if you're with me, let's do it. Number one, the first thing we see about Jesus right here in our text is behold the servant. Um, it, it, here we see Jesus as the servant. Um, I love this part of who Jesus is. He was the servant of all. Um, you know, it's interesting because um, I always, my imagination tends to run wild with ways that God, you know, could have come to visit humanity. Um, but I, I'm always impressed that he came as a servant, just a humble, meek servant that came. Now the word servant, we as Christians, we've sort of romanticized the word. Oh, I'm a servant of the Lord. Or if you want to give someone a compliment in the church, oh, you just have such a servant's heart, you know, and we talk about being a good servant and it's such a warm, fuzzy sort of, yes, a servant. But really the word servant in translation of the New Testament, it's the word slave. 
slave. Can you imagine all the Christian conferences and retreats? They're all named things like, you know, um, you know building a better you or awakening the giant within or um, from greatness to glory, all the stuff that we wanna be and do. Can you imagine if we had a conference that said servant conference? Would anybody sign up? Or even better yet, slave conference, slavery. That's what we wanna be is into slavery because uh, that's what Jesus was or to behold him and be like him. So we should make ourselves, make ourselves a slave. Well, as it turns out, that's what happens in Philippians chapter two. It says, he who made himself of no reputation and took upon himself the form of a servant, slave. That's what he endeavored to be. Now, the word slave is an ugly word. And we have a history in our country that makes us realize how horrible slavery really is. And so I think there's a disconnect in the average American mind of what a slave of the New Testament times would be but there were servants, slaves that were by choice, they chose to be slaves. And they were called a doulos, where they would choose to stay with whoever had them because they were in debt or they were conquered in battle and they became slaves of someone. But then they would be set free once every you know, seven years. But a servant could say, I wanna continue being your slave. And so, <clears throat> by the way, the, the Bible never condoned slavery but it does seek to regulate. And if you regulate slavery the way the Bible does, eventually slavery would have been abolished if you follow the scriptures. But all that to say, Jesus was willingly a servant, a slave. It reminds me of, uh, remember a couple of years back when Chick-fil-A was in trouble because they asked the CEO, what do you think of marriage? Is it, you know, uh, how would you define marriage? Remember the whole debate? And the CEO said, I believe, you know, that marriage is between a man and a woman. That's all he said. And everybody lit up and was freaked out. The LGBTQ community said, ban Chick-fil-A. And they even named a day that they were gonna, nobody was gonna go to Chick-fil-A. And it turned out to be the most, uh, the highest sales of any day in Chick-fil-A's history, interestingly enough. But, but the funniest thing that I remember about that day was um, they were interviewing this big, huge linebacker in the NFL, this big black guy. And they say, what do you think about what the CEO said about you know, marriage as a man and a woman? And the guy answered the question, he said, you know, I don't care if Chick-fil-A is promoting slavery, I'm still gonna eat their chicken. That's what he said. I thought, that's great. Uh, that guy doesn't take himself too seriously, but he takes his chicken seriously. All that to say, I think um, the idea of a slave is so appalling to us, but we have to remember that slavery um, was what Jesus chose to, to take upon himself. When he stripped himself in the gospel of John and put on a towel and started to wash the disciples' feet, he was choosing to take upon himself the form of a slave. That was the slave that was supposed to wash the feet of the, of the guests of the house. And Jesus did that willingly. Um, I love that he came as a servant, not to be served, but to serve. That's what Jesus did. Man, we live in a culture of entitlement where you owe me and I deserve more than this. And people, when they treat you like a slave or a servant, we get all up in a tizzy. But there's an old saying, it's true. You'll know how you're doing at being a servant when people treat you like one. How are you doing? Man, our culture fights against this. But listen to what Jesus said in Mark's gospel, chapter 10, verse 45, Jesus said this, Mark 10, 45, it says, for even the son of man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give his life a ransom for many. Now the word minister is another word we've romanticized. 
Um, you know, I can tell people, I'm a minister of the gospel. People go, well, la-ti-da, a minister. Rolls off the tongue. But what does the word minister mean? Anybody? It means servant. And what does the word servant mean? It means slave. I think sometimes ministers forget what they're really supposed to be doing, serving. And a lot of times it kind of flips around and suddenly ministers are being served rather than serving. And Jesus made that clear. I came not to be ministered unto, but to come and minister to others. And Jesus became a servant. You know, Deb and I, when we moved up here to the Portland area, we came to serve and to, to share the gospel and lead people to Christ. And we wanted to serve. And it's been really, really a glorious experience for us. But as the church grew and grew and grew, pretty soon it was really hard to be uh, serving in the way that we really wanted to. And so as the years have gone by, I've added to our, our team of pastors and leaders. And I just love, you know, when, when we were talking sort of jokingly about the person who has a servant's heart and how Christians say that, we really do have a team of pastors that have a servant's heart. And they're to, here to serve the congregation. I'm so, um, I have to be careful because we're supposed to be humble, but I'm really proud of our young you know, pastoral team that's working hard during this season. Our, our pastor team has been more busy um, in the last uh, four or five months than ever. Um, this has been a very busy season for our team. And the heart of these, these ministers in our church have just really blessed me, just seeing how they're serving the congregation, whether it's praying for people, Zoom meeting, counseling, delivering meals and giving food packages and just serving our congregation, serving the people of our community. Um, I've just been hugely blessed by just the heart of the guys that are doing that work and our whole team of servants, men and women who are just serving the Lord faithfully, humbly, um, they're really modeling Jesus's, um, you know, servant form that he gave us. Um, Jesus said, I came not to be ministered done to, but to minister, to be the one serving. Um, uh, you know, all that to say, Jesus, we see him as the servant. Number two, we see Jesus here also as number two, God's elect. God's elect. He's called that there. Behold my servant whom I uphold, mine elect. Jesus was elect of God. Now, what does the word elect mean? Uh, he was elected in a, like an election that's coming up in November, election? Kind of. When we hold an election, we choose um, who our next president's gonna be, uh, unless it's a mail-in deal or something. No, I don't know. I, there's all kinds of controversy right now about our election process and people are all upset. But when God elects someone, what we're saying is he has chosen them. He has chosen them. Now, in the Bible, there are three main entities that you could say are God's elect. First and foremost is Jesus. Jesus is the chosen one to be the Messiah. God chose his only begotten son to be the one to save the world from its sins. There is no other. God chose him. Anybody who claims to be the Messiah or claims to be a religious guru or whatever, they're not God's elect. Jesus is the one who got elected. Everybody else did not pass the test. I hope you understand that's what it's saying when he says, mine elect, that Jesus was chosen by God. Um, that's why in the scriptures we read, there's no other name under heaven given among men whereby must we be saved. That is of Jesus Christ. He's the only way, the truth, the life. No man comes to the Father, but by him. God's elect. Was Muhammad God's elect? No. Was Buddha? No. Krishna, no. Confucius, no. Oprah, no. All of these people, you, people say, oh, there's a religious leader and they know what they're doing. 
there's only one elect of God, and that is Jesus in that sense, um, that he has chosen to save the world from this. Now, there's the second group that's God's elect, that's the Jews. God chose his people, the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The Jews are God's elected people. And then thirdly, those that were grafted in with the Jews, that would be Gentiles who believe in God's elect, Jesus. People who become Christians, believers, born again, we become the elect of God. And so when you see that term in the Bible and you bump into it quite a bit, when we're talking about God's elect, you have to ask, are we talking about Jesus, the chief among the elect? Are you talking about the Jews, God's elect, or are you talking about Gentiles that are Christians, that are believers and Gentiles, the church? Uh, that's also God's elect. So you have to ask that question. But Jesus is the one who was chosen to be the savior of the world. And a lot of people don't like that. When we used to have people in the sanctuary, um, I would talk about Jesus being the only way. And you could almost uh, like clockwork, there'd be a couple people get up and sort of huff out. Why? Why would I see that? It had to do with this sort of um, relativism. Uh, that is embraced today by people thinking that there are many paths that lead to heaven. There are many ways, you know, and, and uh, people will find their truth and all this relativism. The problem is there's nothing in the world that's like that. Nothing that is like so relative like that, especially when you're talking about heaven and hell, salvation and eternal death. You don't wanna make a mistake on this one. There are not many paths. There's only one narrow path Jesus explained to us in his uh, dissertations about salvation. He said, broad is the road that leads to destruction. And um, there's tons of people that are gonna go that way. But narrow, that narrow door, Jesus said, I am the door. You gotta go through Jesus. No man comes to the Father, but by Jesus, John 14, six tells us. So the people that don't like this, they say, I don't like you, Pastor Brett, because you think your way is the right way. Um, I do think that my way is the right way because my way is Jesus. But don't be mad at me. I'm not the one who said that. Jesus is the one who said that. If you have a problem with Jesus being saying, you know, he said, I am the way. There's no other way to heaven but by me. Jesus made that claim. The Bible makes that determination. So if you don't like what I'm saying, you actually have to understand it's not a problem with me. I think that's the way people deflect. Um, that's how they don't have to rationalize or figure out the truth behind this because they think, well, oh, that pastor said that, but I don't know if I agree with him. Forget about agreeing with me. The question is, do you agree with Jesus? Because that's what actually matters. And Jesus did not say there are many paths. Like all the harebrained people out there that are saying, there are many paths that lead to the same place. No, there's one path and it's Jesus. And I, I hope you see that. Bro, why are you being so emphatic? Because the people that think there are many paths, often they're on the path that's gonna to lead to eternal destruction and they don't know it. They're well-intentioned. They think they're doing the right thing because they've bought into the lies of this world and they're headed for total destruction. So forgive me for being pointed or prickly on this one, but I need to say it. You have to figure out what do you do with Jesus Christ? Because either you believe what he said was true or you, you have to acknowledge him as being the worst guy in history. People say, I think he was a good teacher. Well, he taught that he was the only way to heaven. There's no other way except through him. So either he was a good teacher who was right, or he taught people something that was a total lie. And many people died unnecessarily in martyrdom for their undying faith in Christ. You are forced really to decide what do you do with Jesus and what he said. That's that's where it all gets down to. 
What do you do with Jesus? And I'm telling you, he's God, God's elect. That's the point of him being the elect of God, chosen by God to be the way for men to be saved, men and women around the world. So all that to say, we got Jesus seen here in Isaiah chapter, 20, uh, chapter 42 um, as the servant, number one, God's elect, number two, but also number three, we, we see Jesus here as one who delights the Father. One who delights the Father, it says that. Mine elect in whom my soul delighteth. Isn't that interesting that God talks about his soul? Um, does God have a soul? Well, we were created in God's image and we have a soul. It's a flawed soul and it's got problems, but God in his perfect uh, soul, if you would, one of the things that he does in his inner being, if you could say that, is he has a delight. Um, he, he, uh, he's like the New Testament translation that we read about there in Matthew's gospel. It says, you know, um, he's my beloved or the one who's uh, pleasing, well-pleasing. He's my beloved son in whom I am well-pleased. That's the idea. Now, this is something that I think, again, as we gaze upon Jesus, behold him, I think we miss this. The, the relationship between God the Father and God the Son. We know that it's one being, God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and that's confusing to us and that's hard. But why would God sort of separate the two and talk about this relationship between God the Father and God the Son? I think it has to do with him painting a portrait for you and I to see what it is that God did to save humanity. What's the portrait? Well, it's this loving Father who delights in his Son. Um, uh, he, he's well pleased. Um, Matthew three seventeen. this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Jesus said in John 8, 29, he said, I always do the things that please the Father. So Jesus had this relationship where the Father loved his son so much. He, he, was, he was pleased by his son, Jesus. So what does that mean to me? Well, let's talk about this, um, love. In the Bible, when you wanna rightly divide the word or be a student of scripture, you have to understand there's a, there's a sort of a, a tool bag of things that we have called hermeneutics helps us rightly divide the word and know how to interpret scripture. One of those principles is called the first mention principle. And whenever you come in the Bible on the first mention of any given topic, it's usually a defining and an important mention and you gotta sit up and take note. For example, the word love. When was the word love first mentioned in the Bible? Genesis chapter 22, where it says Abraham was gonna take his son whom he loved that's the first mention of love, a father's love for a son. And he took Isaac and Isaac and he went up Mount Moriah and he was gonna sacrifice the son whom he loved on an altar, Isaac carrying the wood on his shoulders as they went up the mountain. And then Isaac said, father, I got the wood, got the fire, but where's the sacrifice? And, and Abraham said, God will provide himself a lamb. So they get up there, you know the story. Abraham's about ready to plunge the knife into his son. Now, one thing you need to know is Isaac wasn't seven years old, like the coloring picture in your Sunday school class. Um, the word lad that's there in the Hebrew translated is probably in his young 30s, actually. If you look at the original Hebrew, he was probably like in his early 30s when, uh, when Isaac went up there to be sacrificed by his old, really old father. Um, all that to say, when Abraham and Isaac went up there, God provided a ram that was caught in the thicket and Isaac got off the altar and the ram went on and they sacrificed. Well, what was that all about? 
Well, the first mention of love is right there, the father's love for his son. Now, by the way, what a perfect picture of Jesus. Jesus is the one who carried the wood up the very same geographical mountain. Mount Moriah from that Genesis 22 is the same mountain in Jerusalem, Zion. Jesus was going up to the very top of that, which was Golgotha, with wood on his back as the lamb that would be slain. God will provide himself a lamb, and that lamb, John the Baptist. By the way, on this word behold, um, all the greats pointed to, to Jesus like Isaiah's pointing. Remember, John the Baptist said, behold, the lamb of God that takes away the sins of the whole world. Man, I love um, this idea of behold. You know, it's something we see a lot of. But all that to say, uh, so Abraham, the first mention of love, father and a son in a sacrificial context. If you go to the New Testament and see the first mention of love, you see the gospel of Matthew. First mention of love is Matthew 3.16, where it says, this is my beloved son, there when Jesus got baptized. Also Mark and Luke, all three gospels, the first mention of love is a father's love for his son, God's love for his son, Jesus. That's interesting. It's not between a man or a woman or a father, uh, you know, a mother and her daughter. It's a father's love for his son. That's always the first mention of love until you get to the gospel of John. When you get to the gospel of John, we have a little bit of a swap and it's kind of, to me, it's moving, it's profound. So all the first mentions of love is a father's deep love, God's love for his son, Jesus. But when you get to the gospel of John, the first mention of love is a little verse, John three sixteen. Some of you have heard of it. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Do you see the power in that? That God loved his son so much. See, I told you that this whole thing of the father and son and their communication, why does God do that? He wants us to get a nuance. And it's like this, you parents, let's just pretend like something totally crazy, like there was a pandemic and that the world was really sick. <laughs> and suddenly people were dying. Millions of people were dying. And suddenly you found out that your child, mom and dad, had something in their bone marrow or something that was, would, would cure the whole world from the pandemic. And the world and Fauci and everybody comes to your house, coo, coo, coo. we need to have your son. And by the way, he's got to sacrifice himself. He's got to die, but he'll save the whole world from this pandemic. It'll make it totally go away. Um, I'm not sure, I, I couldn't do that. I'd be like, sorry world, <laughs> kind of sorry. You're, gonna, you're all gonna die. Cause you know what? I can't, I, I couldn't give my sons or my daughters as a, the, the, the emotion of that, the, the grip of that just terrorizes a person. And yet God is making this point that I love my son. Here's my beloved son, Genesis 22. Here's my beloved son, Matthew, Mark, Luke, but John, but God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. You see, I think this idea of us seeing Jesus as the one who delights the father, he's beloved of the father. We need to get that relationship. Even though we don't fully understand the Trinity and the nuances of all that, but we do need to understand what God did in giving his only begotten son, the one who delights the father, he gave him for us. To me, that's powerful. I hope you see it too. I hope it makes us thankful as the world that was headed for destruction uh, and the Lord Jesus came and died for our sins. So you have number one, the servant. We see Jesus as the servant. Number two, God's elect. 
Number three, the one who delights the Father. But number four, we see Jesus as the one who is anointed by the Holy Spirit. Anointed by the Spirit, it says that. He, my soul delights in him and I have put my spirit upon him and he shall bring forth judgment. What's this whole thing about the spirit being upon him? Have you thought about this? You know, when did Jesus start doing powerful things? When, when did Jesus do his first miracles? Well, his first miracle, as it turns out, was in Cana of Galilee, where there was a wedding and he turned the water into wine. And people marveled, wow, this guy, he's got miracles. That was the first miracle. When did he start doing miracles? It was after Matthew 3.16. Remember that whole scene that we just talked about where Jesus was being baptized? And all this ties together. Here's John saying, behold, the Lamb of God. He comes and gets baptized. And this is my beloved son. And then suddenly, well, you remember coloring the picture. You always have Jesus being baptized by John, but off in the distance, you see this little dove flying around. What's going on with the bird? Why is the dove? Well, the Bible says that Holy Spirit came in the form of a dove and landed on Jesus' shoulder. And that was a picture of what was actually going on. When Jesus got baptized, the Holy Spirit, he was anointed by the Spirit. And it was then that Jesus started turning water into wine, raising the dead, healing the sick, uh, all that stuff. It was by the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, this is an important thing for us as we look at Jesus to realize he was powered by the Spirit, anointed by the Spirit to, to do what he did. This is important because you and I, as we gaze upon Jesus, we can be thankful for that power. Now, think of yourself as a disciple for a second. And remember there in John 13, Jesus started explaining um, how he's gonna leave them. He's gonna go and be crucified and die in Jerusalem. And the disciples are troubled. So in John chapter 14, Jesus says, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. Remember that whole thing? And then he said, you know, I am the way, the truth and the life, verse six. But then in chapter 14, it goes on and says, but it's expedient that I leave you. And the word expedient is a nice way of saying, it's really gonna be great for me to leave you. I'm sure the disciples are like, yeah, really great. You're the one with the power. You're the one that's healing the sick. You're the one that's, we're just a bunch of bumbling disciples who don't know what to do. And Jesus said, nope, it's good that I'm gonna leave you because after I leave you, I'm gonna send my comforter, the Holy Spirit. And he will, you know, and then there's a long list in John 14, John chapter 16. He explains what the Holy Spirit's gonna do. That the Holy Spirit's gonna come and remind people of truth. And Jesus even said, my Holy Spirit is with you, but he will be in you and he shall come upon you. Just like Jesus had the Spirit upon him to do the miracles, Jesus says, it's expedient that I leave you because... Now, let me give you sort of the paraphrased description of what he's saying. He's saying, I'm Jesus, the son of God, doing miracles. But remember when Jesus said, greater things will you do than these, the things that I've done. Now, some of the weird churches and cults even say, you can be greater than Jesus because of what Jesus said, greater things will you do than the things you've seen me do. Jesus was not saying you are gonna be greater than Jesus. I hope you never buy that wacko teaching. You and I are not even close to Jesus, never will be. Well, then what was Jesus saying? Simply this, greater things will you do in the sense that the same spirit that was upon Jesus is the same Holy Spirit that can come upon goofy little me and goofy little you. And the Holy Spirit can do things not only through the one, Jesus the Messiah, who's perfect, but Jesus was saying, it's good that I'm leaving because my Holy Spirit's gonna come upon the church. 
not limited to one place in Galilee, but the church spread all over the world is gonna be filled with the Holy Spirit doing the work of the ministry. That's why it's gonna be greater, greater in scope because it's not just one person, it's the whole church being filled with the Holy Spirit. We'll never be greater than Jesus, but we are seeing greater things than just the things that happened in you know, Capernaum or in Jerusalem. We've seen the church and it's the power of the spirit move throughout the earth since Christ died and rose again and ascended. He was right that we are seeing greater things as the, the, the Christ is moving in his church by his spirit. So the anointing of the spirit, you might say, well, great for Jesus, but do you understand that same spirit is available for you today? And Jesus even told us how. He said, you fathers know how to give good gifts to your kids you know, being evil, you know how to give good gifts to your kids. How much more will the Father give the Holy Spirit to those that ask? You need to ask. Lord, would you please fill me with your spirit, empower me to do your work, to accomplish your will. So we are thankful that Jesus the Messiah was all of these things. I hope you're starting to see this picture that Isaiah is painting, that's very exact. The servant, God's elect, one who delights the Father, anointed by the Spirit. Now this one gets even more interesting. Um, it says here, bringing justice to the Gentiles. We see Jesus as one bringing justice to the Gentiles. Brett, I, I don't know about that. The Bible says judgment to the Gentiles and you changed it in your notes. Well, if you look at your newer translations, the word is justice. And almost all the new translations say, yeah, it's the word justice, not judgment. Um, there was probably uh, when the... the you know, 1611 King James translators were doing this. Um, they just, this is a, probably an unfortunate translation of a word. So uh, the Hebrew word though, is the word that we would translate into justice. Thank the Lord, because um, I can see why he'd bring judgment to the Gentiles, we deserve it. But actually Jesus didn't bring judgment, he brought justice. Justice in the sense that you and I, justice for you and me would be to be dead for our sins killed, crucified on a cross. That would be justice. But Jesus fulfilled justice by dying on the cross himself in our place, substitutionarily. So Jesus was one who brought justice by paying our price for us. Man, I'm so thankful that he did that for the Gentiles. Now, can you imagine being a Jew in Isaiah's time? Hearing Isaiah saying, some dude's gonna come who's anointed of God, pleasing to God, the elect, the servant, and he's gonna bring justice to Gentiles? Who cares about the Gentiles? That's the way the Jews thought in those days. And in Jesus's time, it got even worse. Um, by the time Jesus was on the scene, the Gentiles were these men, these Jewish um, men were talking about the Gentiles in their prayers. And they would go to the synagogue and say, Lord, I thank thee that I am not a dog, a Gentile and a woman. That's the way these guys prayed, if you can believe that. Totally wacko prayer, but that's what they prayed. And this whole idea of being a Gentile or a dog or a woman was all kind of on the equal plane, um, which is not great for women and definitely not good for Gentiles and not good for dogs either. But all that to say, Jesus loved the Gentiles and would reach out and save the Gentiles. In fact, we even got our own apostle. Remember how the apostle Paul so desperately wanted to minister to the Jews, his brethren? But the Lord kept saying, no, Paul, you're gonna bring the gospel to the Gentile nations um, and that they're gonna be saved. 
And praise the Lord for that. Paul would preach to the Gentiles and eventually he'd go to Philippi, the first Europeans that actually heard the gospel. And then from Philippi, eventually to Rome. And then from the Roman Empire, eventually almost all of Rome becomes believers in Jesus. Um, and then from Rome, it scatters the gospel to all the Gentiles over all the earth. See, there's Jews and there's Gentiles. You're either a Jew or you're a Gentile. Anybody who's not a Jew is a Gentile. That's what the Bible is saying, that Jesus came to die for the sins of the whole world, not just for the Jewish people. All that to say, bringing justice to the Gentiles, um, it's, it's a little bit reminds me of the, the doctrine of justification. You and I were sinners, we've made mistakes, but Jesus, when he died, he brought justice, thereby erasing our sins and making us just as if we'd never sinned or justified because he came and brought justice to the Gentiles. So all that to say, um, Jews thought that the Gentiles were fuel for the fire of hell. And they're thinking, what? The Messiah is gonna bring justice to the Gentiles? Thank the Lord for that. I'm, I'm so blessed by that. By the way, one of my favorite teachings to do in Israel is at Caesarea there on the Mediterranean Sea because um, that's where the Gentiles were first saved. The first Gentiles were saved there, Cornelius and the, um, Simon the Tanner's house by Joppa. And eventually Paul would preach the gospel to those, Peter would preach the gospel and then Paul would go from Caesarea and pump out Christianity to the Gentiles. It's a great place to think about this stuff that we're talking about. So number one, we see Jesus as the servant. Number two, the, the elect, the one who delights, the anointed, bringing justice to the Gentiles. Number six on our list, humble, before men. That's what it says here. He would be humble before men. I'm so thankful, um, you know, for this description. And by the way, you think, what does the man with the withered hand scene in Capernaum have to do with, why is, why is Matthew connecting, you know, this to um, that Capernaum scene and saying, this is what Isaiah said. It has a lot to do with the humility of Jesus. He did all these glorious miracles but he didn't parade the miracles. He didn't say, hey, go tell everybody all the wonderful things I've done. Um, I, I, I do worry that sometimes pastors and ministries, if we're not careful, we kind of cross this line. There's a line between telling people what the Lord is doing and showing on social media what, what um, God is doing through the church. But there's another thing where we're all kind of like, look at me, look at all my accomplishments, look how many people are on my, look. And it's, it starts to be kind of this not humble thing before men it actually becomes kind of prideful and weird. Um, I love that Jesus didn't parade, um, like you know, when they healed people on the televangelists when I was a kid, they'd throw wheelchairs off and parade the people up in front of the crowd to show the healing. Jesus did the opposite. He'd heal these people and say, no, shh, don't tell anybody, keep it down. And he wasn't glorifying himself, but he always did that which pleased the Father and he was humble before men. Um, this makes Jesus, by the way, really approachable. I love the approachability of Jesus. I remember um, as a kid, you know when you meet famous people and stuff, um, sometimes there's, uh, I've met a few famous people just kind of accidentally. Um, I met most deaf once in an airport uh, and I wanted to say hi to him and he wouldn't because, well, he's a Muslim and probably was irritated by fans. But when I was a little kid, I met someone even bigger than most deaf. Um, <laughs> um, I met, I got to meet John Wayne. I was at Disneyland with my grandpa and my sisters and my grandma, and we were going 
uh, to see the dancing waters. Now this was before the, the whole um, you know, thing that they have now, but there was this little show they did with waters dancing, kind of like what they do, but much smaller. But it was you know, back in the um, early 70s, and uh, I was probably five or six years old. I was just a little guy, but I remember walking with my grandma and grandpa, and suddenly my grandpa says, grandson, that's John Wayne. And I looked and sure enough, there's this huge entourage of people. They were all walking. And I saw this really tall guy in a white tuxedo. And I was blown away at just this man that was larger than life. But I'll never forget as he stopped and he said hi to all of us, you know, little people. And uh, I just remember seeing him tower and, you know, being able to see and, and, but, you got the sense, don't be messing with John Wayne because he had a security team and a detail and man, he was not that approachable. At least he didn't say hi to us though. I love that Jesus, he didn't have a posse that was guarding him. Uh, and when they did try to guard him, remember, remember when the, they tried to bring the little children to Jesus and the disciples, get these kids out of here. And Jesus said, suffer the little children to come unto me. Like Jesus didn't have this celebrity status that he was shooting for. He was humble and he was bringing people in. I'm so thankful that our savior uh, wasn't like a celebrity trying to puff himself up, but he was humble. And as we look at Jesus, may the Lord make us be that way, not being like these ministries that are publishing what they're doing and paraded all before. Man, that's not the way Jesus did it. Uh, but that brings us to number seven. Not only was he humble before men, number seven, he was gentle with men. Um, we see that in verse three, the bruised reed that he shall not break, the, the smoking flax that he will not quench. Um, now we lose this idiom a little bit because we don't deal with reeds and smoking flax as much these days. The reed would be this stalk, sort of like bamboo, but um, a little bit like a big weed that Bible people used for different things. And the reed would be valuable as long as it was not bruised. If it was bruised, it would be sort of crimping in the middle and it would lose its rigidity. So if you're making a basket or you're doing whatever, one of the big things they used a reed for, by the way, was for measurement. You know, we get out our Stanley tape measure um, to measure stuff, but they would get out a reed and the reed, they'd cut them in established lengths and they would be able to tell how long something was. Um, but if the reed became bruised, it would crimp in the middle and become sort of worthless and they'd throw it into the fire, burn it, became a garbage. Or the smoking flax, they would make their wick for their little oil lamps out of flax and the, the wick would come out, the little clay lamps with oil in it. And, uh, but if the wick would not you know, uh, move the oil or became sort of brittle, it would stop working and it would just smolder and smoke and it wouldn't become a lamp. So they would take the flax and quench it, you know, snuff it out, throw it in the garbage. Um, and, and here's what the Bible's saying here. This, these idioms is if you're down and out, you're bruised and beaten. If you're barely smoldering and your life is just about ready to be snuffed out, guess what? The Messiah, Jesus, doesn't throw you in the garbage and he doesn't snuff you out, but he comes and loves you and takes care of you and cares about you. Man, I love that. We live in a world today where people snuff you out and throw you in the garbage. Uh, people are not very friendly these days, but I love that Jesus was gentle with all men. I love Psalm 103, verse 13. It says this, like the father pities his children, so the Lord pitieth them that fear him, for he knows our frame and he remembers that we are dust. 
He knows our frailty, our fragility. Um, he knows our weaknesses, and yet he won't snuff you out and throw you away. I love that we have a God who's gentle with men. And that brings us to number eight, the eighth attribute we see in Jesus, and that's just a single word. We see Jesus here as faithful, faithful. Um, it's right there in the last part, verse four, he shall not fail, nor be discouraged. If you have a marginal reference there, it's usually linked to a word where it says discouraged, it's linked to the word broken. Christ is not gonna fail, he's not gonna be broken, but he's gonna be faithful. He, he makes it to the end. How far to the end? Well, Isaiah tells us, till he has set judgment in the earth, is judgment set in the earth yet? Not, not really, uh, we've lost our judgment. Uh, we, we've become lawless and crazy in this world. But there's a time coming, the millennial kingdom. That could be in seven years. The rapture of the church could happen today and then in seven years, Christ returns with uh, 10,000 of his saints and sets up his kingdom where there's gonna be an everlasting righteousness. And that's what it's saying when it says he set judgment in the earth and the isles. Now you that were with us on Wednesday night, what are the isles or the islands? If you remember, it's the nations. That's a, a word that the Old Testament author Isaiah would use for the nations, the islands or the continents, the nations of the world. What does it say? He's gonna set judgment in the earth and the nations shall wait for his law. When Christ comes, the second coming of Christ, the millennial kingdom, he's gonna set up his law where he's gonna rule and reign and bring in everlasting righteousness. And gone will be the days of the coronavirus, gone will be the days of racism, but gone will be the days of rioting and confusion and strife and sin and crime. That's when Christ comes. He's the answer for all these things. Isaiah the prophet is listing eight things here that makes me really glad. Now, before we pack it up, one more scripture, because this looking at Jesus is so good for us today. You might say, Okay, so we've looked at Jesus, what does that do? Well, the scriptures tell us about that. It's 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18. Listen to this. 2 Corinthians 3, 18 says, but we all, that's us, with open face, beholding as in a glass or a mirror, the glory of the Lord. We are changed into the same image from glory to glory, even as by the spirit of the Lord. When you look to Jesus, it's like looking in a glass and you're seeing Jesus Christ, but you start to look more and more like him. You change from glory. You and I were created in his image. But as we look at him, keep our eyes fixed on him, we turn from glory to glory, greater to glory, greater glory. And that's why we're told to fix our eyes upon Jesus, who's the author and the perfecter of our faith. The more you look at Jesus, the better off you'll be. Today, what are you looking at? What are you spending your time focusing intently? What are you beholding? Um, that word behold, I think some of you, that might be you, you've been beholding CNN, Fox News. And so you're becoming irritable. You might even be becoming irritating as you look at all the pop politics and the things that are going on and, and you get more flustered and angry, you will become what you're beholding. If you're you know, listening to Wolf Blitzer or Sean Hannity, you'll become like them, the more you behold them. But if you behold Jesus, you become a servant and humble and you delight the Father 
And you're not hard on people, but you're gentle with people. You're faithful. Like all of these things that we look at Jesus, as you look at Jesus Christ, fixing your eyes on him, what you'll find is you'll become more like him. Put ye on the Lord Jesus Christ that you might not fulfill the lust of the flesh. That's what Romans 13 tells us. I think we tend to put on a lot of things as we behold what's going on in the world, as we behold our computers and our iPhones and the news and all the things that are going on, the music we're listening to, the movies we're watching. The more we behold that stuff, the more we become like that stuff. But that's why time well spent if you look to Jesus Christ. You know, I, I, I think we, I love being in the Old Testament and I, I'll never give up on that. But I think we as Christians should always have one foot in the gospels. You know, in your own personal devotion time to be looking at Jesus Christ, beholding him, looking at his nature, his character, his attributes that you and I become more like him. Because that's a win right there when we become like Christ. So may the Lord give us ears to hear what the spirit would say to the church today, to look to Jesus, to behold Jesus Christ, even as Isaiah admonished us this morning. Let's pray together. And Lord, we thank you so much for this description, these eight attributes that we've looked at of your son, Jesus. Lord, we're so impressed. We know that we can't measure up in any way, shape or form to, to Jesus, but what a challenge to, to fix our eyes upon your son, Jesus, and to become more like him. That's our desire. Lord, work this into your church. Help us to measure out the time that we spend Lord, we realize the days we live in are evil and people are looking to so many things. But instead, I pray that your church would gaze upon Jesus with real intent to become more like Jesus. Help us, Lord, with this. When our spirit is willing and our flesh is weak, would you be our strength, Lord, I pray. Lord, I, I would ask that those who don't know you personally, that have yet to be saved, yet to confess their sins, repent, to believe, Lord, I pray you just stir up hearts even right now that might be watching online. Lord, those that have, for whatever reason, just been stubborn to not repent of their sins, Lord, just tap them on the shoulder. And if that's you, if you're watching online here today and you're hearing this old pastor talk about Jesus and you're tempted to believe, that temptation is the Lord stirring your heart. See, you know you're a sinner you know you have done bad stuff. And the Bible says that you're gonna pay a price for that. And everyone should. But Jesus says, listen, I love you so much that I gave my life for you on the cross. And if you believe that Jesus died for you, rose from the grave and forgives you for your sins, guess what? You're saved. You're, you're saved by grace through faith. Not of any works that you've done or being good enough. None of us are good enough, but you can be saved by Jesus Christ. Jesus is the one who is uh, the one who willingly paid your price, paid your debt, and praise the Lord, salvation to anyone who wants it. All you gotta do is Romans chapter 10, verse 9, 10, confess with your mouth, believe in your heart, the Lord Jesus Christ, that God raised him up from the dead, and it says you'll be saved. Praise the Lord for that. If you wanna do that, do it right now. Or if you need help, call the church and talk to one of our pastors. They can talk to you more about it or work through that just that simple confession of faith. Um, it sounds so easy, and it is, because he did all the work. So be saved, accept Jesus. That, that'd be my challenge to the unbeliever today. Uh, and you'll, you'll be blessed out of your socks. It doesn't mean your life's gonna be perfect. It might even get tougher. 
But at least you know you're forgiven for your sins and you're headed for heaven ultimately. That's what matters. Well, all that to say, we sure miss having you all here in the sanctuary. But uh, until that happens, man, keep plugging away. Don't be weary in well-doing. Keep looking to Jesus and be blessed in Jesus' name. We'll see you next time.